Today in Canadian History for April the 14th, I'm Joe Barima. On this day back in 1826, Robert Chambers, an obscure police magistrate in London, England, met with a committee from the British Parliament that had been assigned to manage emigration. He said something interesting. He said that London had become too full of children. Chronic poverty had led to high numbers of abandoned and homeless youth. Chambers had a novel idea. Send the children to Canada. Four decades later, that's exactly what started to happen. Tens of thousands of children were shipped to Canada until the programs ended in the 1930s. Many ended up working on farms across our nation. Kenneth Bagnall spoke with many men and women who had arrived to Canada as children through these programs. He shares their stories in his book, The Little Immigrants, The Orphans Who Came to Canada. The actual beginning of child emigration to Canada from England began in 1869. That's when the first group of children were received in Belleville, Ontario, uh, brought out by a woman named Annie McPherson, who was a social worker. And so Annie McPherson and her two sisters set up a home to look after such children, but they were overwhelmed with the numbers. And so, as she later wrote, an open door at the front needs an open door at the back. And the open door at the back meant to Canada, because some Canadians signaled to her that they would be very pleased to help out in the child emigration movement, particularly by setting up an institution with her in Belleville, Ontario. So that's how it all began. The first shipment came out that year, and then in a couple of years, the person who was the most influential in child emigration, uh, Dr. Thomas Bernardo, began sending children to uh, uh, Ontario and elsewhere in time. And in the end, uh, by the 1930s, when the program began to dwindle, uh, he had sent at least 70,000 children. Well, usually they were chosen because of the misfortunes that they experienced in England. Maybe they, for example, uh, uh, the parents were just too poor or too ill or circumstances uh, so bad that they had to put the child in a home, what we would call today an orphanage. And the orphanages in, in time all were persuaded that uh, the children would have a better life if they were sent to the clean, fresh air of Canada and the care of Canadian families where they would grow up ostensibly, theoretically, uh, with a better life than they would ever have in the poverty of, uh, of uh, England. The intent may have initially been noble. At the time in England, there was a serious concern regarding the many children who were homeless or who were under the risk of being abandoned, especially in industrial cities such as London, Liverpool, and Manchester. Unfortunately, the children did not always receive the best treatment. It was often the luck of the draw, and society's attitude towards children was different at this time. Yeah, the treatment wasn't what was uh, expected. The treatment, uh, back then, remember, this was before, Joe, before we knew that a child had an inner life. Basically, at that time, 
people felt that what a child needed was food, shelter, and work. Uh, but uh, we now know that ch- children have profound emotional needs. We all do. And so even if the child was not physically abused, and tragically some were physically abused, uh, they were emotionally deprived. They didn't know whether they truly belonged in this family. For example, let me tell you the story of Albert Whaling, who was placed in Ontario uh, and went from farm to farm to farm, and finally... Uh, he, he he moved from farm to farm because either the farmers felt he didn't work hard enough or didn't fit in, until finally he ended up with a family of a man named Frank McLean. And the McLeans treated him well, but he was always wondering, as many adopted children wonder, do I really belong to this family or am I an outsider? Finally, when he was an adult, He was almost a middle-aged man, still living in that community and a successful farmer. Frank McLean was on his deathbed. He had five sons, and he sent for Albert, the other boy who was brought up in his home. And he sent for him, and he went to his deathbed, Albert, and said, What can I do for you? And he said, I'm on my way, but I want my boys to carry me to the grave, and you are one of my boys. And it was then, only then, that he really knew, Albert knew, he was in a family. Let me give you one other illustration. There was a woman who told me her story in Belleville, she stayed in Belleville. She was in the home in Belleville and then placed in, in families around Belleville and was a very lonely little girl. But she was brightened in the first few months by the story that before too long, the daughter of the farm family was going to be married and how she looked forward to that ceremony. She'd never seen a wedding. So it brightened her days as she anticipated the happiness and the ceremony and the party that would be part of the wedding. But on the day before the wedding, she was told in no uncertain terms that she was not to show her face outside the kitchen. She never forgot it, that, Joe, that's what life was like for them. They were never sure that they were part of the family. It came to an end, it dwindled to an end because of the Great Depression and, of course, the war years. But there were some I met who said that they came out as late as the 1930s. Uh, A commission from England was sent out in the early years of the 1900s to report on it and went back to Britain and said, this is not working. The the program of supervision to see that the children are treated properly is not working because it has more to do with the level of satisfaction of the farmers and their families than it does the level of satisfaction from the child's point of view. But they went back to England with their uh, report, and really nothing was done about it. 
Uh, in the end, one of the things that brought it to a close was the fact that the, the labor movement began to protest the bringing in of orphan children uh, who might take jobs from uh, other, other established Canadians. But finally, what really ended it was the realization that it was inhumane. Well-intentioned, yes. But as a lot of other things in our past, good intentions are not enough, as they were in, in the residential school situation. It began with high intentions, and it wasn't 100% bad, but it was, it was totally inadequate and inept. And so just put yourself in the shoes of a, a young man like a man, Fred Elliott. I, I met him in a, a, a tiny village in southern Ontario, and good man that he was, he he worked his way through university and became, in time, a school principal. But as a as a as a young fellow in England, his dad said to him one day, "We're going for a drive in the country. Come on out, and we're going for a drive in the country." And he said, "We drove out beyond the main city of London to a suburb, and I saw Doctor Bernardo's home coming up, and I knew we weren't going for a ride." And so the boy was left at Bernardo's home, in time shipped out to southern Ontario. And what happened was memorable. He went to a home where the farmer looked at him as the supervisor who placed the children in Ontario, brought him to the door, and the farmer said to him, he's too small, he can't do any work. And there was a pause, and the man said, I'll tell you what I'll do. They're all small, this trip, a whole lot of them. But I'll leave them here with you, and I'll be back in two months. And if it isn't working, if he can't do the work, I'll take him and try to place him somewhere else. So he came back two months later, and the farmer and his wife met him on the front door at the step. And he said, well, I've come to get him. I guess I'll take him elsewhere. And the woman said, you can't have him, Mr. Jones. He's become our boy. And so they saw him right through high school into Queen's University, and he became, in time, a high school principal in southern Ontario. So that's part of what the experience was like. It was, it was literally the proverbial roll of the dice, you know. Today is a day full of Canadian history, especially if you're a Montreal sports fan. On this day back in 1960, the Montreal Canadiens won the Stanley Cup, defeating the Toronto Maple Leafs. And on this day back in 1969, the first Major League Baseball game in Canada took place in Montreal when the Expos played the Cardinals. And as always, on this day we aired this episode of Today in Canadian History. Today in Canadian History is produced by CJSW at 90.9 FM in Calgary. The executive producers are Joe Barima and Mark Affeld. Original music is provided by the Fisk, Fletcher and May Trio. This series is not meant to be a definitive source on our past. Instead, we hope that it sparks a desire to learn more about our unique history. For more information on the series, or to recommend an event or moment, check out our website at cjsw.com slash todayincanadianhistory. What, what has happened, Joe, is that uh, while there was great interest when it came out uh, as a book, uh, there is now continued interest in it 
on the part of people who are local historians or genealogists and people who listen to programs like yours who wonder what the what the uh, outcome was for grandpa or their now their great grandfather because they want to find out through reading books like the little immigrants what in the world did grandfather or grandmother go through 